We will now officially start. Uh, my name is Richard uh, Lambert. I'm chairing uh, the lecture tonight. I should say, uh, for reasons of propriety, I'm also on the board of the Institute for Government, and I would like to say what a great job uh, Bronwyn and her team have done over the last year, sorting their way through all uh, the noise and focusing on the things that matter in the machinery of government. They actually have done an exceptional job in uh, challenging times. So the plan is um, that uh, Bronwyn will speak for about um, 30 minutes. Uh, she and I will then have a chat for uh, 10 or 15 minutes, and then we'll throw it open for a general discussion. That's the plan for the evening. And it's now my great pleasure to introduce the director of the Institute for Government, Bronwyn Maddox. Thank you. Richard, thanks very much indeed. And when we planned this, we didn't realize we were going to be meeting as kind of such drama just two days before we leave the European Union and all the meetings now going on in Brussels about that. Thanks very much indeed for coming. Thanks to you. those of you next door, I can't see, and on the live stream. A year has proved a very long time in UK government. Last January, we were here talking about the paralysis of, part of politics. And now we've got a clear election result. There it is, and a declaration <laughs> by the Prime Minister that he intends to bring about real change, although I have to say there is still a lot that we don't know about what he intends to do. And some of the sense of national clarity, if there is one, may prove misplaced. This does have the potential to be a bumpy year for the government. On Brexit, where we leave the European Union just over 48 hours, Northern Ireland, Scotland, the greatest danger, though, it seems to me, is that the very high ambitions that Boris Johnson has set for levelling up the regions of the UK prove impossible to achieve, and that could leave voters who are already sceptical of government even more disillusioned. The Johnson government's thrown itself, even if just rhetorically so far, at some of the country's most entrenched problems. The lack of productivity growth, inequalities in access to education and health, a glittering capital city that draws in the world but leaves much of the UK feeling left out in the cold. And the government's got to tackle new challenges too, ones that were all but think unthinkable a decade ago, such as whether this country remains a United Kingdom, as well as huge global problems where the UK wants to play a part. It's pledged to be carbon neutral by 2050, but doesn't yet have a plan of how to do that, something we're going to look at here. You might say that that's the nature of government. It aims to do a lot. With luck and a lot of effort, it gets a bit of that done. But whether government works and is seen to work really matters. I've said to colleagues here that I took this job after years of going to Iraq and Afghanistan and post-conflict zones and seeing how without good government, there's really no chance of improvement in people's lives at all. You can't generally do the economics or the bureaucracy without doing something about getting the politics right, as Tony Blair and others have found in tackling the Palestinian territories, trying to improve their fortunes while sidestepping the political impasse there. I have to say that the UK has hardly seemed like a model of good government in the past three years to the world's fascination John Burke remains a star of German television. <laughs> but the UK still represents principles of democracy and good government to many people worldwide. A journalist friend of mine, very much of the Remain disposition, was telling me how he'd been talking to a Russian about the Brexit vote and saying, I woke up that morning to find the country had done this terrible thing. And the Russian replied, at least, my friend, you went to bed at night not knowing what the result of the election was going to be in the morning. <laughs> That's the best of how others see the UK, but it needs to be underpinned by public confidence in government at home. So the point of this talk is to look ahead at the government's main challenges this year, and then to say what we're doing at the IFG to help it, or indeed to convince it, to handle those better. I'm going to talk about three main questions. Civil service reform, levelling up, to use the government's phrase, levelling up the UK, and Brexit, the union of the UK, and the constitution. We'll start with that one. And indeed that. The now nationally recognisable 
figure of the Prime Minister's chief advisor. I was going to say uniquely recognisable, but I came over the park earlier today. Everyone had the same hat, and I was thinking, <laughs> there he is. No, there he is. Here at the Institute, we didn't expect the Christmas present that Dominic Cummings sent over our way when he made the usually arcane question of civil service reform the talk of the town. After the election, when the rest of politics had gone quiet, he published his latest blog calling for deep reform of the civil service, as well as calling for misfits and weirdos to apply to join it, a garnish which got all the attention he presumably intended, and apparently, he says, 35,000 applications. Dominic Cummings may have won more attention than normally because ahead of an expected reshuffle, ministers have been pretty quiet, it seems to me, but my guess is they will soon give advisers more competition and advisers are, after all, just advisers. It's ministers who will be held to account by the public for decisions. All the same, we really welcome his intervention. He's making many of the arguments for change that we've made since we started 11 years ago. We also welcome his sense of urgency that he's brought to this, even if his prescriptions, as is often the case, are more debatable. Having said we're very supportive, I think it's a pity there's been so much discussion of one proposition, which is shuffling around the structure of Whitehall departments. That can be useful to make a point about priorities, but it's often an expensive distraction. We found in our work that it has cost a minimum of 15 million to set up a department. In one case, the creation of the Department of Work and Pensions, it cost more than 170 million because of the equalizing of salaries that had to take place. These are all the departmental changes of this period, 1975 to last year. And you can see the sheer amount that's gone on. Some things like the Treasury and the Foreign Office and the Home Office stay serenely on at the top, and the Northern Ireland, Welsh, and Scottish ones in the middle. But anything to do with energy, business, uh, and education, as you can see in the middle, all dancing around. If there are changes, it needs to be clear why. There's been a lot of talk about bringing together the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and the Department for International Development and for folding the Department for International Trade into something. But although officials have started looking at how this might work, the aim isn't obvious, and yet different goals point to very different answers. If the point is to tie aid into foreign policy and the national interest, you might indeed merge DFID in the FCO. But for two decades, a great deal of effort has gone into keeping those goals separate. To merge them is more than a bureaucratic exercise. It's a big change of direction, and the government should then say so. If the point is to claim more of DFID's budget for the FCO and other departments, it would be simpler just to reallocate the cash. If the aim is just to have fewer people sitting around the cabinet table, there are also simple, if brutal, ways to achieve that. The same with trade and foreign policy. Are they distinct or not? The government has now chosen to disagree with the US over Huawei and 5G, consequences for security cooperation as yet unknown. Is it prepared to disagree with them over Israel, Iran, diplomatic immunity, if a trade deal is at stake? Or will it make those decisions subservient to trade? We've yet to find out. What matters, though, is the decisions, much more than which department takes them. And make just one exception to this. We have argued that it would be better to move migration policy out of the Home Office would stop it being treated as a branch of law enforcement about who's overstayed their visa. Embedded, for example, in the business department, it would put the focus on the skills the country needs. Dominic Cummings makes several much stronger points, in our view. One is about the poor policy advice the civil service sometimes gives ministers. We agree, although he should, in our view, have acknowledged too the ways in which ministers may reject good advice, even when it's given. As things stand in the civil service, knowledge, experience, expertise are often undervalued. There's a lot of talk about evidence-based policy, but that overlooks how much expertise is actually needed to inform the use of evidence. How to set up an Im immigration system, decide whether, where to build a road, work out whether to subsidize renewables, set up a new exam. These things all take time to master. And one of the causes of this problem is the rapid turnover of civil service officials between jobs, a point on which we've done a lot of work. And this slide shows um, the percentage leaving their departments, either because they leave the civil service or they go to another department. Um, and you've got 40%, okay, the new department, newish of Dexu on the left, but you've still got 
um, kind of high 20s for the Cabinet Office and the Treasury over towards the left. And that doesn't include the rate at which they move within, uh, between projects within the department, which bumps it up enormously on top of that. So a lot of people changing what they're working on every year. All this is prompted by pay and promotion rules, meaning they can't advance often without moving job, as well as a culture that encourages ambitious officials to go and get a lot of ex different experience. And not to leave politicians out, though, here's a slide on how many secretaries of state each department has had since the start of the coalition in 2010. And uh, some of them, if you can't see, I refer you to our website, um, but obviously some, some of them have had up to, up to eight. Um, that's DCMS, the culture department, right, right at the top. Um, and, um, and, and even in our, even the sort of majority of them, you've got really a lot of shift there. And this hypermobility pretends that someone can just walk into a brief and be expert overnight. This is nonsense. It's to treat all government as the same. People who are in a job for longer have a better sense of what's worked before, including overseas. They will understand more of what's failed. Repetition of things that have failed before is a big problem, consequence of this kind of turnover. And when civil servants move around so often, they also undermine part of the case for the value of an impartial civil service, precisely that it offers expert advice. The lifting of the 1% pay cap has helped, but it would be good to see more ways of promoting officials while they stay within one speciality. There's a strong case, too, for more ways of helping people go in and out of the civil service, for the civil service to credit experience in the outside world, for example, rather than treating those who've done that as if they've been on long cruise for some years. This isn't a prescription for misfits and weirdos, but it is definitely one for shaking up a culture that is of its nature hierarchical and can be resistant to change. And finally, we agree wholeheartedly with Dominic Cummings on the need for more accountability. Parliamentary committees should recall ministers and civil servants to give evidence more often after they've left their jobs. And at this point, I'm going to give our regular call for more reliable government data. The flood of press, press releases, which ministers have got ever better at, is no substitute for consistent data that actually means that we and voters can judge how they're doing, including in the devolved governments something that we're going to look at. Here's a chart of the increasing proportion of freedom of information requests turned down in recent years. And departments that go down the left axis, years along the top, the pinker and darker it gets, um, the fewer were granted in full. And the dark pink sort of down here is less than 20%. We move on to the next category, levelling up the UK. More than Brexit, this is what the government says it wants to be judged on. Uh, I'm happy with that. I can't think of much that matters more for the future of this country. The fact that this has been a quest to which many governments have devoted much effort doesn't make it less important. This is a slide, a version of which I uh, use quite often. Uh, <coughs> slides have frozen. No, no, they haven't. This is the um, um, how many regional policies they've, they've been over the, year, over the years and the initiatives. The policies are at the top in purple, a program that comes down to programs in red, and then you've got organizations in gray and departments, and then people down the bottom. Um, I'm not trying to test your eyesight. Uh, this is um, the, the, uh, the sheer crowdedness of that slide makes the point. Um, though, again, you can find the um, horrifying and fascinating details on our website if you, if you want them. But for all this effort, there is still enormous controversy over the techniques of how to go about getting economic growth in different parts of the UK, developing a de developed country, if you like. <laughs> We're firmly in favour of the government's pledge to devolve more powers to local areas. There's a democratic case for it. There may often be an economic case for it in that judgments about what is needed may be better made very locally. But there are or should be also important concerns Without enough scrutiny, devolving more powers can foster corruption, lack of competition, the favouring of vested interests. We are missing the Audit Commission that kept a close eye on local government finances. We're certainly not against moving the House of Lords to York if the government really means that and it wasn't just a warning shot around the withdrawal bill, the withdrawal agreement bill. 
would be a symbolic move, but symbols matter. But the idea rather misses the point of devolution, which is not to slice up central government and paste it in different bits around the country, but to devolve real powers to regions. When it comes to deciding what to invest in, there is even more controversy. The Green Book, the Treasury's set of rules for investment, is enjoying more limelight than you might expect for a bureaucratic Bible. As many have pointed out, it tends to favor repeated investment in the richer parts of the country, because according to its formulas, that often seems to yield the greatest benefit for the country overall. So there's a lot of interest now um, by the new government in how those rules might be changed, and we welcome that. But for a start, that risks overstating the constraint that the Green Book has actually had on past decisions, many of which have been immensely political, in fact, and then wrapped up afterwards in a kind of Green Book justification, as our research has found. And if now, with the change to the rules, there's not to be a political free-for-all, with investment mysteriously gravitating towards the constituencies the government is most anxious to retain, then what should the rules be? How should ministers choose between an investment in Sunderland and one in Merthyr Tydfil? We are wary of anything that becomes a license to pour money in without consistent principles. And we're also concerned that there's been huge attention on big infrastructure and less on education and skills. To take one of the most controversial projects, our view is that HS2, perhaps not its most photogenic aspect, but in a way its most ambitious, is probably just still worth it. But the argument that no one really knows what it will cost has some force. It's possible too, though, that its benefits have been underestimated. The project has, after all, done the hardest bit already, securing the property to punch a badly needed north-south corridor through a densely built country. The problem is that government models of costs, and particularly of benefits, don't work well for huge projects, even if they're not bad at calculating the value of a bypass. The government's plans are riddled with these kinds of questions. Officials tell us that the government is thinking of three kinds of interventions to help boost growth once we've left the EU. For businesses that might go under during the disruption, but which would survive if given temporary help. For Sunrise Industries, it thinks will be Britain's future and for communities where an industry is beyond doubt expiring. But these judgments are very hard, not just in picking winners at which governments are famously bad. We published a recent paper suggesting how the government should decide which businesses actually had good claim to support, for instance, during Brexit turbulence. It's very hard for governments to admit that some industries are not going to survive. And then they often don't want to admit that public spending alone will not bring back jobs. This government needs to be straight with some towns about whether it is reasonable to hope that jobs are actually coming back or whether the aim is just to make them better places to live in than they are now from where to travel and work elsewhere. I don't want to sound discouraging about this. The astonishing Docklands revival wouldn't have happened if Michael Heseltine, who was passionately committed to this kind of question, hadn't plugged away all those years on creating the conditions for revival. But it is a genuinely difficult area, and one that has been hampered by government coyness that Brexit might bring any economic damage, let alone that it could hit manufacturing areas worse. The third bit thing I'm going to talk about, the government's most immediate challenge this year. First Brexit, and then holding the union together in the face of the strains which Brexit has created. On Brexit itself, the government has said that it is committed to ending the transition period on December 31st with no extension. Senior officials say they're working to the brief that a trade deal with the EU is a bonus, but not a goal. We should take this seriously. There are a lot of milestones to tick off to get to a trade deal, even a minimal one. Lots of them. My, fa my favorite one in red in the bottom, fish. Deadline for fish, fish agreement, 1st of July. The nature of the clash, the government is going to have with Brussels over trade deal is pretty clear. The EU is going to push hard for alignment, more than it would with a normal free trade agreement. The UK asserts the right to diverge, although ministers have produced recently an astonishing array of statements about whether the UK actually will do that. Many essentially contradictory remarks, even from the same person. Even if a deal is agreed, there is going to be friction, the Chancellor has acknowledged. Businesses have the problem then of preparing for a new world on January the 1st when the details of any deal, if there is one, might not be clear until shortly before. The same goes for the civil service. 
still trying to plan for the parallel worlds of a trade deal and no deal. And there remains the question of Northern Ireland. This is the new assembly this month. The Prime Minister's deal requires there to be checks on some trade between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. That has tilted views just a bit more towards reunification. One Belfast man I was talking to recently who called himself a unionist said of the deal, in a rather sad, tough way, the Brits don't want us and the Irish don't either. But actually, while there's been understandable caution in the Republic about reunification over the years, polls do suggest a majority in support. I and my Institute colleagues have spent quite a bit of time in Northern Ireland this year, the past year, feeling that the questions were undercovered and that the urgency was rising. Our report in September on the consequences of three years without government was immensely well received and is reflected in some of the things the reborn assembly is doing now. And the resumption of the assembly shows that the DUP and Sinn Féin politicians did hear the message at the general election when both lost support. Voters were really fed up that the sectarian rift was depriving them of government. There are other healthy signs too of the decline of sectarianism you hear, you hear fewer references to the two communities, to orange-green problems. There are more shared spaces, as it's coyly called, and non-sectarian political groups are growing. On the other hand, parts of Belfast look, visibly look, stuck in the troubles. Sectarian divisions there are still palpable, and violence continues far more than is reported here. This is a recent UK government, all paying for it, uh, advertising campaign, telling people don't join the paras of either side. Um, it's on the Belfast, uh, side of a Belfast house. And the police service of Northern Ireland has just reported 85 paramilitary style shootings and assaults in 2019, categorized as loyalist or Republican. Um, that's up from 68 the year before. Brexit and Johnson's version have burst into this as a sudden test that many people really didn't want of where their greater sense of identity lies, south or east. One of the Prime Minister's hardest tasks, tasks may be keeping support for the Union in Northern Ireland, as he says he wants to do. It may prove even harder to handle than the calls for Scottish independence, which he can stall, although next year's Scottish Parliament elections could ratchet up the pressure. His challenge is to make the case for the Union why the component nations of the UK should stay together. An economic argument alone won't do it. We saw that in Brexit. But the very nationalistic terms of the debate have shut off alternatives, such as more devolution or federalism. How the Prime Minister handles this, in the end, may have more impact on his reputation and on the UK than Brexit. So I've talked about the, UK's, uh, about the government's main priorities this year. What are we doing here at the IFG? IFG's work and any of our events. Don't worry, you're not going to be taking a picture of and it will appear on next year's slide. Um, in the past year, we're glad to have celebrated our 10th anniversary, partly reflected there, with an international conference. We held 82 public events, published 38 reports, and a whole host of comment pieces and explainers. And our web traffic is up a lot. Not numbers we chase in themselves, I hasten to say, but our research is strengthened when more people talk to us and people pay us more attention, the people we're trying to influence, whose minds we're trying to change, when they know that awareness of our work is rising as widely as this. Our work in 2020 is going to be shaped inevitably by the government's priorities, plus the things we think should be a priority. These are our categories in which we talk about our, our, our work. We will do a lot on, this, on civil service reform, particularly on encouraging civil servants to become more specialist and expert. We'll do a lot on public investment and devolution. We're continuing our Brexit work on the uh, choices in the negotiations and readiness for the end of the year. And we're looking forward to the Constitutional Commission supposed to start this spring, although we hope that is not simply a way of uh, looking at constraints on the government's role from the Judiciary Parliament or the House of Lords. We'll continue to work on public finances and public services through the spending review expected this summer. It's going to be an extraordinary year. Work of construction in many ways. The government has the opportunity of a big majority to do an awful lot. We hope that it does not now use that majority to hit back at critics or to avoid scrutiny, the value of which is to produce better government. 
It's important, yes, to look at the future funding of the BBC, but to boycott its main inquisitors suggests intolerance of scrutiny. And it would make a nonsense of talking about global Britain to undermine the UK's best known global brand, as the BBC arguably is. There may be good reasons why John Burko shouldn't end up in the Lords, but for the government to break with tradition by not nominating the former speaker, again, suggests intolerance of challenge. And what the government does on constitutional questions, as I said, will be a key test, perhaps the main one, of whether it respects the powers of other institutions. All that said, this government is indisputably ambitious for developing further and more equally a country that has historically been respected for its pursuit of good government. It's made promises of real change. It's got the majority to make that possible. And that's where we're going to focus mo most of our effort. Thank you. Uh, thanks uh, very much, uh, Bronwyn. Uh, trenchant and clear, as you would expect, and also featuring what I always think at the IFG, the best slides in town. I think, uh, <laughs> fantastic. Some um, of which you may even be able to read. <laughs> um, I'd like to start off by talking about power. Uh, you started with a picture of the Prime Minister and talked about his big majority. The opposition is still picking itself up from the canvas. Uh, the Prime Minister uh, really holds the jobs of all his cabinet ministers at his convenience no one he can't afford to sack if he wants to. And the balance of power between um, number 10 and number 11 is more skewed in favor of number 10 than any time I can remember. And I just wonder what that means. And I, I, you know, I was thinking that uh, there's the court in number 10. Um, are we looking at Henry VIII um, there? And um, are we thinking that uh, Cummings is possibly Thomas Cromwell? I mean, the new Hilliard Mantel book is coming up. Talk, talk, talk a bit about the way power is going to work for the next year or three. Which, which is going to record the execution of, of, yeah. of, of Thomas Cromwell. Yeah, and leaving Christendom as well. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, it is real power. Um, he has this uh, majority, and he has, as you said, a sort of a freedom at the moment from an awful lot of scrutiny. The opposition is nowhere, mm. um, taking a very uh, you know, slow route towards picking a new leader. Um, and um, Again, Parliament has been pretty quiet on this. The committees are barely set up. So I think we, we're in a way, in a, in a, the Prime Minister is having something of a honeymoon. It is real power, but he, the, the scrutiny that will get going isn't there yet. And I don't get a sense of complacency from number 10. Uh, there's a sense of, um, yes, exhilaration, um, but also wariness. They know that in many of these new constituencies, and it was almost the first thing the Prime Minister said, um, that there may be votes on loan, uh, that some of those um, seats are won by very small uh, majorities, and they can't take that for granted. And so the sense of having to pedal pretty hard to uh, continue to get public support, I think, is, um, is very strong. They, 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 they are certainly are behaving in that respect very much as if they are part of a, a vibrant democracy where they could get thrown out in, in, uh, for... Uh, also years' time, depending on, of course, what they do with the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. But mm. to me, as I was saying right at the end, what they do with the constitutional questions really matters, because you get, as well as this sense of ambition uh, that I think is exciting about this, the, this government, you get the hints of potential vindictiveness, as mm. I was saying, saying at the end. Yeah. And, um, so the Supreme that, Court is a question there. That, 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 that is a big question. Mm. And um, you know, while swipes at individuals don't matter too much, um, those individuals stand for things, um, it does matter to undermine the BBC, and it absolutely does matter to undermine or try and constrain the Supreme Court. So there are tests by which I think we'll look at whether they, they abuse that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you suggested in your talk that once the business of government got going, the we'd see less blokes in beanies on our news front, which would be a pleasure in some ways. Uh, do you think uh, that's a temporary phenomenon, that uh, the influence of a, that particular advisor and others will diminish with the passage of time? In his particular case, no, I think. I, the sense, I mean, he's held in very, very high regard by mm. both the Prime Minister and Michael Gove, and, I, and uh, his strategy, which is immensely controversial back in the autumn when... Um, all kinds of people rushing around and the Conservatives saying Dominic Cummings didn't understand Parliament, yeah. mis misjudged the whole uh, prorogation fight. Um, his stock is obviously riding high at the moment. But yeah. I think he, he does have a set of ideas there which chime with very much what the government wants to do. Yeah. But, and, and interesting and, that, you, yeah. that it aligns with what the Institute's uh, uh, goals are in some important ways at any rate. 
Yes, some of them, um, not all. Yeah. And, and the goals, yes, not always the means. No. We, we mustn't spend too much time talking about Brexit, but we can't ignore it altogether. Um, you said it's going to be a bumpy road over the next uh, 12 months, and part of that road, those bumps will come from uh, Brussels, uh, no doubt, all of that, and those discussions. Where do you think they will be most acute, and how do you think the uh, Prime Minister will handle them when they come? This is, uh, to me, this is the big question. Everyone's dealing with it, and particularly in number 10, is, oh, last year's subject, and then the election result brushed that away. Well, it didn't, really. Hmm. Um, the the potential clash is really pretty clear. The EU is determined to push very hard, and there's you know, barely a few days when you don't get another government popping up to say something they want to add to the yeah. EU's side of the negotiating thing. It was the, uh, the Irish and, and fish, 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 in there. fish yeah. the other day. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, and these you know, symbolic things that are not economically important but matter enormously to coastal communities, yeah. some of which have just voted Tory. Um, those things are going to matter. So I think we begin, the, the heat begins to rise in the first half of this year, and that will come <laughs> kinds of deadlines that are around the middle of the year. Right. And, um, and there's going to be a constituency within J Johnson's team saying, look, just walk away from all this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not just fish, it's the European Court of Justice, all, all mm. kinds of things that they find very inflammatory. Um, at the same time, I think he and many in his team really don't want the distraction of a big fight, mm. of walking away with no deal, we're getting all kinds of reassuring, pragmatic sort of talk behind the scenes of, um, look, there's no appetite, there's no political appetite for big diversions. Mm. Uh, we want to assert the right to do it, but actually let's just get on with other things. And mm. But really how this is going to play out, um, these things are explosive. Yeah. And, uh, so I think uh, much as they don't want to talk about it, uh, we are inevitably... Sorry, yeah. going to spend part of the year talking about it. Yeah, well, we're all obviously thinking about your lecture uh, next year. And, except, except uh, me. <laughs> so just kind of reflecting back, that in a year's time, uh, we'll, have, we'll have done some deal on products or something and kicked everything into long grass. Is that what we It, it is so much in not just the countries, but the Prime Minister's uh, interest to do a deal that I put a, a, a bit of money on that. Yeah, yeah. I was really, changing the subject, um, I was really very interested in your comments about uh, levelling up and how that might work. And I'd just like to uh, tease out a few more mm. of the institutes and your thoughts on that. I mean, you talked about um, the ideas of devolving power and the benefits, potential benefits, and some other risks. Could you elaborate on that a bit? I mean, do you have you, are you working on the ways in which power might devolve? What sort of structures might be ideal? But you know, the relationships between uh, um, central government and the regions, towns and cities. What, what's the, um, what's the What's the roadmap, so far as one can see, then? We, we are likely to do some work on that, and we certainly have views, um, mm. and um, certainly supportive of the idea of more combined authorities. It's immensely technical uh, phrase for the, one of the best working uh, structures at the moment. Mm. Um, but what really matters is not so much the structures as, I, I think, the, uh, uh, the money and the freedom to yeah. raise it and, and spend it, and the question of where those decisions go. Mm. Um, and again, while we spend quite a bit of time here on structures at the Institute, um, they, they matter. Um, what matters even more is the purpose mm. uh, that they are uh, going to be put to. And, um, and that, there is political, <coughs> that, that there is sort of public support for that. One of the reasons that devolution hasn't gone even further, regional, mm. sort of internal to the England sort of devolution hasn't gone further, is um, lack of public buy-in uh, to some of these things. So I think the government is going to have to not just do some structural work, but actually work at getting public support for, say, yeah. more, um, more local government in the northeast, yeah. places that have turned their back on it before. But we are doing work on that. We're doing a lot of work on the economic side of it, um, where government should put R&D, or how it should make those decisions, yeah. and how it should make these decisions that I was referring to, um, how it should make these choices, um, because... Um, everyone's pretending that the Green Book is very pure, as I say, at the moment, and that this has been the Bible that has guided every government's action. It, and it isn't really like that. Um, it, it has uh, been sometimes, as I said, a sort of wrapper for a decision already taken. Um, but we are very firmly of the view that there should be rules and not that you just end up in a free-for-all and mm. governments pouring money where they most want. And so, you know, a lot of our work is going to be on the uh, the economics and the um, the steps by which government make, makes those decisions. Yeah, one of the, one of the sort of challenges in a 
world where we're no longer members of the European Union will be about state aid, I guess, and the, the, the rules which apply when, um, which is, I mean, it's pretty easy now for a government minister because they can just point to Brussels and say it's all their fault. Um, it's I, I can't different. give you this money because Brussels has said no. Yeah, there will have to be some regime, uh, I guess. And <laughs> it, do you it, have a sense that that's being developed? Um, well, you say there will have to be some regime. Um, uh, I wish. Um, but um, there, um, there doesn't have to uh, be rules of the kind of clarity and consistency that we would like. Yeah. And this is, I think, our big fear. I mean, as it absolutely would, be, would have been with a Corbyn-led government which was proposing in tones some of the same things, of yeah. throwing the Green Book out of the window and yeah. um, doing more what it wanted on state aid. And I, um, this, this is something we want to look at and want uh, government to acknowledge um, the difficulty of the decisions because you might get a company coming along. It might, for example, be called Thomas Cook. Or Flybe, possibly. Uh, or whatever, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And say, look, our business has really, really been hit because of Brexit. They might have a point. Yeah. But you might still want to say, um, um, you don't deserve tem temporary help because mm. there's other reasons why we think yeah. you're just not going to yeah. make it. These yeah. are incredibly hard. As you said, they're more political without the shield, yeah. the cover of, of Europe. Yeah, I'm afraid I'm old enough to remember when governments did have freedom to make political yeah. choices yeah. on such things, and they were generally chaotic. Yeah, I, I, well, uh, you look, look, our big fear, sorry, our big hope for this year is that the government does find good places to put uh, regional investment, and our big fear is that it will be back to yeah. that uh, really uh, a sort of political self-indulgence on a grand scale. One of the opportunities they have, of course, is they have a pretty uh, strong national balance sheet. Uh, they have uh, borrowing costs close to zero. Uh, they could do stuff on a scale. They can't, uh, do, do, do you think they will? Do you think that the um, fiscal rules that they've outlined, do they have any meaning? Or what's, what's your feeling about that? That, that is a really good question. And we will see, and this, we know that this is what they're working on ahead of the budget, which is, I think, March 11th, um, of how to frame those fiscal rules hmm. and um, how much to change them if you, if you like. Um, they do have some meaning, but I think one of the things that has changed in not just this government's perspective, but really the government debate overall in the past few years is greater acceptance of, uh, of more borrowing yeah. um, because rates have remained so low, more mm. than people thought, and more acceptance that putting it into projects, if you can find projects that give a good return, yeah. uh, is a good use of yeah. Uh, of, the, of, of that money in the period we're in. Yeah, yes. I mean, I guess the spending review this summer will be, will be a moment. And you've done in the past lots of interesting work on spending reviews and how to go about them um, and what the best way to approach those big five-year questions are. I mean, no, do you three, have Or three-year or one-year, as the last one was. I mean, yeah. our, our main point is do them. Um, yeah. Uh, but, um, and of course, that will look at the big questions of public spending mm. um, and the public services. And it's it's very tight. I don't. Mm. You're there for all. Um, you know, that's not. The government doesn't want to fund public services by more and more borrowing. Mm. And there, the picture is really not very comfortable. Yeah. I think we produce a document called the Performance Tracker, which looks mm. at money into public services and then what kind of quality comes out at the end. And um, some of them are under real strain. Mm. Um, we found for the first few years after uh, the squeeze began in in, in 2010. You did get more efficiency, mm. and uh, some worked better for essentially yeah. the same I input. And then um, the quality in quite a few started going down. Mm. I do get the sense in government, in this government, that there is an acknowledgement that the pressure on the MOJ and uh, the justice system uh, went too far. Yeah. And there's obviously a desire to do something urgently about social care, which is within the local government funding. Rapper. But this stuff will come to a head in the middle of the year, and the conversation is not going to, I think, feel very comfortable for the government because it will have to put in a lot of money just to keep standards the yeah. same and to raise them as it's essentially promised to do. Well, that takes even more money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember I say I'm a freak for IFG slides, and your killer slide about 18 months ago was violence in prisons, uh, which mm. showed that nothing had happened for the first years after 2010. Uh, there was no change in the volume of violence from prison. Then suddenly, in about 2015, it went boom because you couldn't cut any more, and the consequences were dangerous. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm wincing. I'm sorry, I'm an eternal editor, wincing at you calling it a killer slide. But yes, apart from that, sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> apart from sorry that, yes, that. it is yeah. a, a very powerful slide. Yes, yeah. Yeah. yes, yeah. and uh, it has got worse.
Yeah. So do you think that, um, I mean, in, the manifesto really didn't say anything much about all this, but quite big commitments have been made on health. There's a big question about social care, which is, could potentially be unbelievably expensive. Do you think, what do you think they're going to do? How are they going to manage? And they've raised expectations, as you said in your talk. How, how, how will that all play through? It is a really, really good question to which I and I think they don't have the answer yet. Mm. Um, there is a lot more money going into the health service. Some of that, what uh, Theresa May promised in her last summer, and um, that, that begins to show up soon. And mm. that, in some ways, will help some of it mm. uh, hold steady at where it is. But it's going to need more. Yeah. And it's only going to need more to meet public expectations. Mm. And social care, they haven't really started on mm. yet. Mm. And obviously very burnt by the Conservative manifesto a couple of years ago from sure. suggesting that people should use their own uh, assets for that. Though I'd be surprised in the end if so that doesn't come back into the debate mm. in some form, maybe not under this government, but, uh, but, but, it, but it might. Um, no, the manifesto was, uh, in the most disciplined way, very slim, and that's why mm. part of the reason why, as I said at the beginning, we've got so many questions about what the government actually wants to do. But we do have a sense of the direction of travel, um, and it, it, it does come with a sense of being prepared to spend money, though, mm. as I said, more on the capital mm. investment than on the, um, right. the public services. Yeah. Um, I, I want to ask a couple of questions about um, uh, the United Kingdom and your comments on that. And after that, I'd like to throw it open to people to raise questions and make comments on what you've said. So if you could prepare to do that, that would be a good thing. Uh, let's talk a bit about um, the makeup of the UK. And one of the things the Institute, I think, has done really well over the last year is look at Northern Ireland. Um, mm. Uh, which uh, most... Uh, I'm, I'm really proud of what our, our people have done on that. Yeah, because the coverage mainly elsewhere has been um, uh, rather superficially uh, around um, you know, the, um, uh, the relationship with Brussels uh, rather than the, the institutional and constitutional threats that seem pretty visible there. In your talk, I don't, I, you, you, you said that Johnson has a great challenge there and you talked about his need to make the case and be out there. But that's not going to do it by itself. He's going to have to, he's going, what's he going to have to do to stop the slide in Northern Ireland? He's first going to have to address the Northern Ireland protocol, that bit of the Brexit deal that yeah. deals with how stuff is going to have to get from Northern Ireland um, to the, U, the mainland UK. And, and, uh, and, and back, that's not back done again. That's It's not, not done. The, the details matter enormously um, to really the handicap that that will put, uh, if it does put, on, on businesses in Northern yeah. Ireland. And the, the people are, in Northern Ireland are really, really going to care about that. So that, that really is the first one. Um, I think, you know, trying to argue for the, the benefits of the country is something that he could, uh, of a country as a whole, is something that he could be good at. He is good at that kind of rhetoric that goes mm. beyond economics. But you can um, get it wrong with one official, um, UK official in Northern Ireland, saying, um, oh no, the government is thinking of an advertising campaign, this was before the election, um, all in red, white and blue, and that is not going to work here. <laughs> and um, I've been very struck in this work, um, I, I've gone over to Northern Ireland a couple of times in the past few months, I've been really struck by how separate it feels from Whitehall and how hard it is to get it into a Whitehall conversation. Yeah. Um, Scotland is there because of the sheer noisiness and formality of the Scottish independence. And they're here in Parliament. Yeah. Um, and Wales is getting more and more vocal about mm. its, uh, the unfairnesses of the Barnet formula, which don't give yeah. it as much money proportionately. Um, and proximity does help uh, in, in Wales. But Northern Ireland um, just is that bit separate. And it's funny how often you hear in conversation people just say, Oh, well, it, you know, it's different, so let's not deal with it in this conversation. Yeah, yeah. And one of the reasons we've done this work is um, trying to thrust it into the mainstream conversation about the government of the UK. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that seemed hopeful and positive in past years was the way in which the institutional connections between North and South, uh, let's just say universities, for example, mm. were developing, and that was being supported by uh, Whitehall. Is that a way or is, it, is, it, is that a game over? That no, I don't think it's game over at all. I think exactly that kind of um, north-south 
uh, and east-west, as, 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 as I say, um, cooperation in institutes in civil society, to use that mm. for an abstract term. I think those kind of things really matter. And um, the government has, um, in part, been very good at that. And yeah. the assembly, when it's up and running, can uh, yeah. encourage those things. But it's yeah. very hard for that alone to drive it. Yeah, and you were saying, really, I think, that, or you're implying that the Assembly had got back together again because they'd seen the results of the election and thought, crikey, um, we've got to, you know, we've got to get a grip they on realized, this. They realised people were fed up, and also the DUP, um, which, in my view, had played what started off as a strong hand. Uh, it, it had overplayed it. Um, mm. Anyway, they, they'd lost their influence yeah. here and realised they... So is that a hopeful back. sign, that, you know, the re-emergence of the Assembly? It is definitely hopeful. I think there's really a limit to how far you can take stuff without the elected government there. There are yeah. decisions that civil servants simply should not and cannot sure. take. Yeah. And the place was stalling because of the lack of yeah. political, in the best sense, political decisions. Yeah. So are you, I mean, where on your scale of anxieties is Northern Ireland? I don't know that I'm anxious. I think it will find its own <coughs> route. Um, and if that's towards reunification, that will um, be very, um, you know, deeply fulfilling for a lot of uh, people there. Mm. Um, it's it's anxious for uh, it's a source of anxiety for people who want to keep the union yeah. together yeah. Um, as uh, as, a, as a prime goal. Um, and I must say, I, I, I would when a country or a part of a country gives up on a union, I, yeah. it, it, um, you know, it can be a source of regret because it's. Yeah. A, turning your back on actually getting something to work together. Mm. Um, but I think the Prime Minister, who does want the union to stay together, or says he does, uh, for him it should be a source of quite active concern because yeah. it's the kind of thing that can just slide away from yeah. political um, grip. And yeah. um, demographics is one of the factors, not just, <coughs> not just Brexit and politics that's pushing it that way. Thank you, Bronwyn. I'd like to throw it open now, and if people would raise their hands, and there's a hand up there. Uh, the brown jacket first, and then a couple down here, and then one there. Yes, uh, my name is Bjarne Nurm, I'm the UK correspondent for the Danish Daily, Kresse Dauble. Um I wonder whether they could give some ideas about what juicy bits does uh, Boris Johnson need to get out of a deal with, with, with EU27 to convince the Brexit voting British public that it was a good decision? That Brexit was a good decision, or yeah. the deal was a good decision? Yeah, the deal. Um, I think the Brexit voting public is probably convinced already or will be in two days' time. Um, because for many people who voted Brexit, um, what they wanted was out, and we will have left, um, or even if many things remain the same until the end of December. Um, so I think for, you know, I think for a lot of people who voted that way, there isn't a sense of a great amount um, that he has to prove at this this point. What does he really have to get out of a deal? Um, you know, there it turns to business and, and the hit to the economy. So I think he really he, need, he needs not to um, have something that causes enormous amounts of friction and the pretty much inevitable hit to economic growth that would follow. Um, and then you're, you're you know he, he hasn't gone for um, what Theresa May was trying to do of essentially access to the single market and, and customs union without, with, without it quite being that. Um, so he simply, in my view, it's not so much about juicy bits of a deal. He needs to, he, he would be helped by getting some kind of deal, even if uh, framework by the end of the year. Um, even if, um, my question is more about whether he, the extent to which he feels he needs to do that at all. Uh, any question here? Vincent Burke, I'm erstwhile civil servant, and uh, so I'm interested in, in the comments you made about the civil service, and perhaps you could say a bit more about a particular area where you feel the civil service really let down government. Perhaps um, the miscalculation of predictions for the level of immigration in the, in the noughties, which possibly could have been a, a you know a root factor in the Brexit vote. That's a really really interesting case. Um, as always, though, with these things, and I'm, I'm flickering through uh, some in my mind to do with uh, Iraq, and I'm also sort of pondering, as you, as you were talking, on Brexit itself, the quality of advice given over the options on Brexit. Um, 
he does in the end come back to the political decisions. Um, and so if you take the Brexit stuff, which I think is the, the biggest recent uh, example, I think there is a question about whether um, the civil service uh, encouraged Theresa May to explore or to think that, that options were runners that were likely to uh, fall short in Brussels or Parliament. Um, but in the end, you know, very quickly, that comes back to the task they were set by um, uh, by ministers, uh, almost impossible one, of, of reconciling things that couldn't be reconciled. Um, other ones are more, I mean, predictions are very hard, and I think that is a quite a fertile area for this question that you've asked. Um, and so, you know, pretty well anything to do with transport at the moment, including HS2. Um, the numbers are very... Um, they're very open to debate. The extent to which they should be open to debate is, is not always made clear. And um, you do get pick up quite a lot of uh, suggestions of optimism bias in the things that are put forward, that are lower cost and going to be better for traffic or, or, or whatever, and then it turns out not to be the case. Um, and um, you can kind of feel the dialogue going back and forth of ministers wanting um, to see how a project might be possible and civil servants certainly producing a set of numbers that uh, is plausible, but there might be others. But, you know, the, the part of the problem of this is, um, is how politicians choose to use information as well as what civil servants do. Yeah. A question there, and then two at the back. One, should we start taking questions? Uh, one, one at a time is fine. Oh, okay. Is there any high-tech way of getting questions from next door? Yeah, yes, you, you shout out that people next door are very welcome to come and stick their heads around. People next door are very welcome to stick their heads around. <laughs> Over to you, and then two more at the back. Hi, um, John McTernan, I'm former advisor to many former ministers and prime ministers, and currently senior fellow for you. Um, my, my question is, if you were in number 10 speaking to them, say to Dom or to um, the Prime Minister, and you had to say to them, you're a new government, here's two things you need to do well, to make this a success. This one thing you must never do and this one thing you must do. What would be the must do and what, must be, what would be the must not do? Uh, to make a government a success. Oh, thanks. I'm going to think about that um, <laughs> overnight. Um, I don't think they can get past Brexit. So I would say the must-do um, um, is to extract some kind of deal with, with the European Union this year. Um, the must-not, and it goes along with that, and perhaps the Prime Minister has already just done it, would be to uh, concede too much to the US, um, who are really, really fed up, that is uh, an understatement, with the uh, Huawei 5G decision. Uh, and it's not quite a love actually moment of, um, of the Prime Minister. Um, so should we feel pleased about that reason? I, I can't pronounce on the security yeah. advice, uh, yeah. though I'm struck by the confidence of the NCSE yeah. on this. Um, but I think yes, detaching this decision from all the other things that the US wanted to surround it with, particularly the potential of a trade deal. I think that was an important first step. And there's going to be loads of others coming down the road. We're going to have Israel in a, yeah, a matter of days. Uh, there's the Iran stuff, there's the diplomatic immunity question. And this very early stand uh, on that, I think really does, is valuable. So I'm dealing with the sort of, the, the, most, the most immediate things, but I, that, that's my starting point. I'll Thank think you. of others. Thanks for asking. Uh, man in the back in a brown jacket, and then woman with fair hair. Hi, Jake Sumner. Um, I am also a former uh, advisor, um, but not as uh, many as uh, John McTiernan. Um, one thing is, um, you know, there's lots of jokes about Dom, oh yeah, Dom, this, Dom, that. But I mean, you know, he's in contempt of Parliament, and you know that it seems that there isn't that isn't reflected or remarked upon much. And so how do you think that sort of reflects, reflects on the probity of the government, but also on the quality of decision-making and how the government actually uh, goes about it, it, its business? Because we've long talked about the centralisation of England in particular in the UK, and is there not a case for um, a much stronger and robust 
uh, devolution of powers which, and, and which often lead to much more transparent decision making. Councils have to publish much more information on how the quality of decisions are made um, than uh, national government. And you're calling him in, in contempt of Parliament himself in precisely what sense? Well, wasn't, uh, he, didn't, he didn't turn up to Parliament, did he, to answer the questions? So, I mean, you know, that's... And, and then he was made a, you know, he's, he's a chief advisor. So it's sort of that, that's unremarked upon. Um, and it feels like, well, do we just ignore that? There's a good, uh, look, there are many precedents, and is that different from turning up and not answering the questions, you know, at all? Uh, and there are ministers who've, who've, who've uh, done that in the recent past. Um, uh, um, I mean, my I, question is on the devolution of Parliament. So let's take let's take yeah. that let's take that question. Yeah. Um, no, but it's also about scrutiny, which is which is and the end of your question was as well, which is really important. Um, devolution. Um, look, I, as I was saying, I think it's you know generally there there is a lot to be said for it. It is amazing how um, governments and parties are really keen on talking about it ahead of elections, um, and then afterwards it's uh, amazing how the money and power does not somehow move out from Westminster and go down there. And so the, one of the questions is how they actually uh, plan to do that. On your confidence, your confidence, though, about decisions, as you say, is always being made at, uh, better at a local level and local government being much better, much more transparent. I don't, I don't share that, I have to say. Um, it's much easier to get at central government, in a way, and petition them and yell at them if they haven't produced something. It's actually quite hard um, for the public, um, for others to... Um, to do that with uh, all kinds of local government and quite often it escapes the scrutiny in my view that um, more high profile um, national projects get so I don't, I don't totally share that um, your question just to flick back to the beginning about, about uh, Dominic Cummings and others um, we are you won't surprise you very much in favour of scrutiny of of government, not just by us, but by others like like uh, select committees and so on. And so, yeah, I cast a pretty uh, chilly eye on, on that kind of thing. Um, but that does also come down to the kind of powers of parliament and committees. And I think even though we've got a majority government now, parliament has seen uh, and sort of exercised more of the ways in which it can um, try to call uh, government to account and probably is, 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 has got better at it because of that. We'll, we'll have to see. A question uh, there with her and then uh, one here. Amanda Spielman from Ofsted. Um, clearly, Bronwyn, I welcome your, your, your remarks about not overemphasizing major projects at the expense of um, education and skills. Um, in the school space, I think the most credible evidence suggests that, that really there's very little difference in regional effectiveness, um, though there are clearly some things to address nationally. Um, but I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts on in the, the area of vocational education and skills. What, given your emphasis on devolving decision-making, what you'd like to see devolved and how? That's something we're going to do uh, quite a bit of work on, and specifically what should happen with further education and what the kind of... Uh, regional freedom should um, uh, should be over that, um, and I can um, I could offer you a slide as complicated as the one I showed on regional policy that is just about further education policy and all the initiatives that, that governments have had over the years about it. There've been so many. There've been so many, uh, and, and well-meaning people. I mean, you know, not a cynical one uh, up there. If I if I put up the slide, um, uh, and yet it, it it stalls, as you know, um, even even better than uh, I do. Uh, I think it is enormously important um, and it's at that level uh, further in technical education um, more than schools that uh, we, we're, um, we're going to look for exactly that reason so um, if, you, if you'll forgive me saying um, let's, um, let's have that conversation in a few months when we've got some work underway but thank you for the question most definitely I think we have time just actually probably just for a couple more questions and you uh, thank you very much it was really interesting um, talk uh, I'm Sarah Main. I'm the director of the Campaign for Science and Engineering. I just wanted to focus on this, the middle part of your talk on the levelling up. And my sense is that um, the government and the Prime Minister have shone quite a light on science, R&D and innovation within that um, sphere. We've been trying to think about um, uh, 
how R&D investment could genuinely help in the um, task of regional economic prosperity mm. um, and, and, and a number of, we're working on a number of ideas and the thing that I think is important to avoid is a very centralised investment of large sums of money that actually don't reach out beyond the walls of that new research institute into the community around it and actually have very little effect. I just wondered if you could comment, if, if you or the institute have any ideas on how you think R&D investment made uh, in order to sustain and grow regional economies can be effective? Um, again, I'm going to say, I mean, it's for a good reason. It's, it's not evasion. We're um, uh, about to begin a piece of work by Giles Wilkes, who was um, in number 10, working on exactly this for many years under different uh, leaders, uh, on exactly this question of, of R&D and where it should go and, um, and where it should go regionally. Um, and again, there's something I'd be very happy to do. Um, come back to people on as, as that develops. We don't, we, much of our work, we don't bend around any incoming government, but some of it, in, inevitably, we do pivot when new government pitches up, particularly one with a lot of ideas, and we say, okay, we're going to do some work uh, quickly, and we, we do work uh, pretty fast, um, drawing on uh, work that we've done over, over the years. Had Labour uh, led a new government, we would have um, done a lot uh, very quickly on renationalisation. Um, as it is, we will do... Um, only, only that tiny bit prompted by the government's uh, partial renationalisation of the railways that seems to be going on um, as they fail. But we'll, we'll, we'll certainly consider looking at that. So, uh, as I said, it's not an evasion. I mean, we're picking up these questions, which are very live, but I don't want to improvise answers that one of my expert colleagues is going to give at length. Um, so, but thank you, thank you again for the question. A couple of racing quick questions from the front here. One there, one there, and then we, I'm afraid we're probably able to end. Susan Kramer, House of Lords. I, I just wanted to ask you about where you see or how you will scrutinise the changing relationship between government and parliament. The Withdrawal Act is full of Henry VIII powers, and most of the powers that were once the competence of the European Parliament are now being returned to the UK government, not to the UK Parliament, trade being a very powerful example. There is a concern that the underlying trend is to go to a local government model where an executive cabinet makes all the decisions and everyone else, the equivalent of the parliament, the assembly type bodies, that uh, can scrutinize, raise issues that are not involved in decision making. Is that a pattern that you're seeing and is that something that you're picking up? It hasn't happened yet. I mean, thanks again for the, I mean, it, 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 all this has, has barely started. Um, and, um, but as I said, uh, I mean, the constitutional questions, um, in any case, that the government is tilting at, but uh, you, you've uh, absolutely properly added the ones, you know, prompted by uh, powers repatriated from Brussels, um, competition policies, another one, it's terribly interesting of how the UK is going to deal with that then. These are things that we are very much going to look at. Um, what exactly the government intends, we, we, we don't know yet. Um, uh, and um, we certainly will produce views. It, is, it tends to be uh, faster work once the government starts saying what it is that it wants to do. Last brief question from Andrew. Uh, Andrew Carner, a governor here at the Institute. Bronwyn, thank you for your talk. I want to, you to give a view on the quality of governance in this country. Dominic Cummings arrives, as you say, saying the, governance, uh, the, the quality of, of, of government uh, an administration just isn't good enough, we've got to do better. In my experience, every new administration for the last 45 years has said much the same thing. And interestingly, around the world, there's quite a crisis in governance. In, in France, I find my friends there uh, think that they've got the worst government ever. Many people in America are saying government is falling apart. And in many other countries, there's the same feeling. Taking a cool-eyed look, do you think the quality of our governance is going in the wrong direction? Or do you think it's merely not getting better quickly enough? You've got a lot merged into the word government there. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I mean, Dominic Cummings is taking a run, particularly at the civil service. Um, and when some of the other populations you're talking about are complaining about their elected government uh, or the, the product of, the, uh, of this whole thing. Um, we... Um, um, it's... it's um, I'm really not sure how to answer this, I mean, because I'm not quite sure what you're asking, um, which is whether I feel that British government overall, including the elected government, is 
getting worse. I suppose I was trying Dominic to. Dominic Cummings doesn't think to, that. He thinks I was trying to give you a really a lovely sort of easy thing for you to hit to the boundary, saying, is the quality of 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 government, of administration, of the civil service, of of political power, the way it's exercised, uh, generally speaking, improving in this country, uh, or is it generally decreasing? And is the Institute for Government having any impact in one way or the other? I think we've got time for a yes-no answer. Yeah, I was, just, I was, just, I was, I was um, I think some parts of it are getting much, much better. I think for all that we're saying, uh, 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 the analysis of evidence and the sense of how to use evidence um, and what that looks like in a policy decision, um, that is getting better. Um, the civil service is getting more professional in some ways. Um, uh, more, more expert, more specialist in, in some of its skills. That stuff is getting, uh, is getting better. Um, but government overall has obviously not been very good at one of the prime things, which is making people of the country feel uh, that they are well governed. And uh, whether it is, um, you know, the, a few big setbacks take the country a long way back. So the financial crisis, um, two wars that didn't go to plan, if I can put it that way. Um, uh, and on top of that, you have the sort of grinding feeling that many parts of the country do that they're just not even considered by government. And that has to be a failure in a way. And we've, you know, we've, we've had this astonishing three years, partly because so many people felt they weren't well governed. And um, so I can talk about all kinds of technocratic ways in which I do think the quality of some parts of the government are getting better. But you have to, at the end, to come back to voters um, who have been pretty fed up um, but have now emphatically picked one government, but on sufferance. So we'll have to see. So, well, thank you uh, very, very much indeed. I mean, you've um, set out a, a, a very bold and ambitious plan for the Institute for the next uh, 12 months. And um, the exciting thing about that is the issues you've raised are central to the well-being of this country. So you're clearly, uh, the ideas which set up the Institute 10 years ago are paying fruit, and we wish you and your team well, and we thank you very much indeed for your lecture tonight. Thank right. you. Thank you for coming.